Good day, and welcome to the Pandemi Show. Stories of the Pandemi for people living in the Pandemi. No one is alone on the Pandemi Show. Today's Pandemi story comes from Meredith in Sheffield, England. Meredith talks to Dave about having a Quarantino Bambino at the start of a global pandemic. They discuss parenting without extended family, politics, and pub culture in the time of coronavirus, and hearing baby Andrew Chortle reaffirms the hope that this too shall pass. I see a little red button. Hi, everybody. I'm here with Meredith Warren, who's living in Sheffield, United Kingdom. And Meredith, I just want to invite you to the Pandemic Show. Thank you for having me on the Pandemic Show. So we're about six months into the pandemic. It's early August, and you're from Canada, but living in the United Kingdom. And what What's the vibe like of the pandemic there? What are what are you missing? Is there anything you're appreciating about the pandemic? So I'll I'll start with vibe maybe first, I guess. Um, I haven't really left the house very much except to go in my neighborhood and like go for walks. So I can't really say about the city more broadly. But Sheffield, I think, is doing okay with its numbers. So that's promising and sort of reflects that people are being good babies and staying safe. We have like a neighboring municipality called Rotherham that's doing very badly indeed. But I don't really know what the context is of that. In my in my neighborhood, like it's a pretty small community and people really are looking out for each other. It was like very early on adopted the um, like one of the mutual aid societies that just wanted to look out for each other. So apologies for baby noises in the background. But yeah, everyone's looking out for each other. People are being careful and luckily we've had like good weather so people are able to still you know see each other and have that kind of social interaction but at a at a distance and in the fresh air so the pandemic hasn't been politicized where you are people are practicing physical distancing maybe wearing masks hand washing yeah there's i mean hand washing for sure everyone's obsessed with like the alcohol gel we're in what's called the People's Republic of South Yorkshire, so in a little left-wing bubble. So if it has been politicized, it's been, you know, recognizing the cuts that the Tories have made that have really affected people badly, recognizing how stretched the NHS is, the health service, recognizing the inadequacies of, you know, food distribution and who's able to afford things. Excuse me, I'm doing an interview. You know, just especially when people were doing the hoarding in the beginning, like just recognizing that it was totally the the system that we have of like people just going and, you know, not being able to buy food. It just really showed the shortfalls in how we're organizing our society. That seems to be the case here in Southern Ontario as well. Really identifying problems that were existing before the pandemic with long-term care of our seniors problems with migrant work conditions, um, housing policy, but I hear a little bundle of joy. And so you, you and your, you and your partner started your family during the pandemic with this little guy. Yeah. Well, we didn't, we didn't plan to have a pandemic, a Quarantino Bambino as my husband calls him. (laughs) Um, But it just turned out that our due date was about three weeks into lockdown in the UK so he was due on the 1st of April, but he was reluctant to vacate the premises, probably because it was all a little bit wonky outside. So, you, you excuse me. <laughs> what a little cutie. Um, 
he's a little baby pterodactyl. Yeah. So it was a couple weeks into the pandemic and the little one arrived. What was it like starting your family weeks into a lockdown pandemic? I can only imagine it must be very challenging, stressful being far away from your family in Canada. Yeah. There was a lot of things that went very wrong as soon as the pandemic started making restrictions on what you could do. So I ended up having to be induced, which meant that I had to be in the hospital for about 24 hours before Mike was able to be with me. Once we had Patrick, I had to have an emergency C-section, which meant that I had to stay in the hospital for like 36 hours afterwards. But Mike wasn't able to stay in the hospital with me. So it was just me and Patrick alone for 36 hours, which was also really stressful. And, you know, I really wanted to get back home to be with Mike. I was so aware of Mike, like missing Patrick's first few days. And so I probably could have benefited from another day in the hospital just to like make sure that my C-section was healing okay. But I was so frustrated at being separated as a family that I ended up like being really antsy to go home before probably I was ready. Now Um, I know, but at least, hmm? sorry, I know in Waterloo, They're not letting people have visitors in the hospital. But one of the exceptions is they'll let the father in for the moment of birth. And also (laughs) caretakers are allowed in for people that need a caretaker. But so it sounds like the restrictions were pretty tight at the hospital there too. And that was one of the first challenges your family experienced. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I was really grateful because I'd heard stories of, you know, hospitals in New York state or somewhere else in the States, not letting husbands in or partners in at all for the birth. So I was really worried about that, but luckily that wasn't the case here. And the midwives at the hospital were excellent. Like the, the staff were fabulous. I felt really well cared for and never anxious about, you know, potentially coming in contact with a Corona patient or anything like that. Like there was no worry once I was there. It was just the anxiety of being separate from, from my partner. We're lucky that there's a high degree of professionalism in our healthcare system. And hopefully, yes. as we move through this pandemic and come out, our elected leaders will support them more. Was there lots of shortages with personal protective equipment when this started? Still, it's really, really, it was really bad for, for the beginning. I think it's still pretty bad. Yeah, staff not having enough of anything. Um, sometimes you'd go, I was going in for checkups, obviously leading up to when I gave birth. And sometimes they would have extra masks and stuff for patients and sometimes they wouldn't. It was not good. And of course, I think there was an order for PPE that that came in and it was faulty stuff in the end because they'd got some dodgy contract from one of their buddies, which was just, you know, not the way to do it. Similar stories of uh, shady PPE here in Ontario as well. It's interesting how there's very similar parallels between the United Kingdom and, and Canada. Close allies. Well, yeah. You elect a populist leader who just wants to be popular and that's what you get. I think we've been lucky with our the political leaders in Canada in the sense that at least they're buying into the science and the need Thank for goodness. physical distancing, unlike in the United States and some other countries suffering from populism yeah. right now. Although I will say that the UK was about three weeks behind where it should have been. So we were witnessing Italy go into hard lockdown. And the UK government was talking about herd immunity, acquiring herd immunity naturally just through everyone getting infected which was terrifying um, to have the government just not take things seriously at a time when I needed everyone to take it very seriously because, you know, I was pregnant. I was going to have a baby. So, yeah. I'm glad 
I'm glad everything worked out. And then when you got Patrick home, how would like what happened when you got Patrick home? Did you notice the pandemic in an adverse way or a positive way? I mean, I was talking, I actually met on Wednesday with a bunch of um, women from my prenatal group and their babies because we all had, you know, we all had pandemic babies, basically, as it turns out. And um, we were talking about how some of the like positive and negative sort of things from the pandemic played out in our lives. So we all felt that um, we were sort of forced to become more confident very quickly with our babies and how, how we became sort of parents to our babies. Just we didn't have... You know, my parents were supposed to come over on the 1st of April and stay for a month to help out and just to, you know, cook meals and just be around as resources and, and a comfort. You know, you kind of want your mom around um, and they weren't able to do that. So we were on our own, just, you know, just a couple of like me and, and Mike and Patrick, just the three of us. And so I was forced really quickly. We both were to like just get to know him super fast and to sort of plow our own way forward with with being parents and um, learning how what he needs and what we need and everything like that whereas if my parents had come over like that would have been you know we would have really liked that and we are really sad about missing that but it would have been we would have had more of their input into how we parent than we did end that up having inter intergenerational knowledge yeah which obviously is good because you don't have to like figure things out the hard way but we also you know we also got to figure out what worked for us really early on so what's it been like getting supplies for your household, uh, making sure you have everything for Patrick? Has that been a problem or? So we, not really for us. I mean, we're in a really privileged position. Like I work for the university, you know, Mike's got a, a good job. We're, we're, we're not hurting for, for money. We're not, you know, making use of food banks. So we're in a different position than a lot of people in the city are. I also, you know, before the pandemic started, I was on strike for several months. And so I used that strike time to basically like make sure we had everything. Not because, you know, not because I was aware that there was a pandemic coming that was going to shut everything down, just because I was bored at home. Yeah. Not being able to stand on the picket line for, you know, however long when you're eight or nine months pregnant. There's a lot of labor unrest in Ontario with the Ford uh, neoconservative government going after the teachers and the mm -hmm. healthcare providers. And it's interesting that as soon as the pandemic struck and people started to realize the magnitude of it, they settled their disputes, but they were pushing for larger class sizes. Everything yeah. that the pandemic has illustrated is a problem. Mm -hmm. They were pushing for all those types of things. So it's interesting to see the parallels, parallels there. And how, how's Patrick doing? Oh, he's doing fabulous. He is like 95th or 98th percent off our weight. Like he's putting on weight like a champ. He's, he's, you know, he's very healthy. He's super happy. We just tried him in the Jolly Jumper, which he loves. He hasn't quite figured it out yet, but he knows there's something in there for him. Yeah, I know he's doing fabulous. Probably really thriving, having all, both of his parents there 24-7. Yeah. Outside of a pandemic, you know, the family would still be involved in economic activity and whatnot, but with the lockdown, that, that slower pace of life is something I've really noticed. Yeah, I find it's, it's a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with him that we wouldn't get otherwise, um, which, you know, good and bad things that come out of that. Like, someone told me that breastfeeding success has skyrocketed in England because of the pandemic, because fewer people are stopping by new mothers' homes 
just to see the baby or there's less pressure to go out. So it's just this, there's the chance to build that relationship and sort of try as much as you like without the pressure of like social stigma or someone looking at you or whatever. So that's a really positive thing. And we've had, you know, great success with that as evidenced by the size of this little meatball. The little meatball Patrick. (laughs) Yeah. He's adorable. (laughs) When I hear him, it makes me smile and thinks about all the hope all the hope that there is with this pandemic. Yeah, there's, I mean, it's shown a lot of, it's shown exactly how resilient people are, but also how much neighborhoods care for each other and how much people want to make society a more equitable place that we don't have to scramble every time, you know, the near, smallest blip in how things are planned. You know, if it goes wrong, we don't want to have to reinvent the wheel every time. We want something that's, we want a safety net. We want stability for everyone. We want health for everyone. We want, you know, comfort for everyone. So that's a, that's a real positive. And what would your, what would an average day then in your family, like the, your daily routine, what would that look like? Um, so it's too little to have much of a routine but we've kind of carved one out for ourselves so he doesn't sleep much past well at four o'clock he refuses to sleep in his own bed so he comes in and sleeps with me on my side and then at about um seven o'clock my partner takes him and has sort of daddy baby time until about nine or nine thirty and then patrick comes back to me and mike starts work again and then, you know, Patrick has a feed, he has a nap, we play, sometimes we sing songs, sometimes we sing Rafi, sometimes we sing ABBA, we usually go for a walk in the day, right now it's pretty hot outside, so we're not really going out in, in the daytime, we'll wait until it gets a bit cooler out. Yeah, we just kind of move from room to room, he's got, you know, little toys, like a little maraca that he can listen to and he's got some little teething things that he likes to suck on and chew on and we just kind of mooch about and read books and sing songs and yeah go for walks and then you know when Mike's done work we uh you know maybe we'll go and sit in a very socially distant beer garden or maybe we'll go and walk and see the ducks or we live right on a river so oh what river it's actually the dawn river the Don River. Yeah. So as on another note, has pub culture been affected? How has pub culture been affected in the United Kingdom? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely was because all the pubs and restaurants were shut down for so long. Um, in our neighborhood, we are lucky to have a number of excellent, independent, traditional pubs. And everyone was very worried when things started that we would lose them because they're just the heart of the neighborhood. Like pub culture in the UK, it's where... It's where families hang out. Houses are a lot smaller, so people tend not to have as many people over to their own houses. People meet in pubs. They're like the community living room. Um, oh, hi. Hey, Patrick. Um, <laughs> and um, our pubs all started doing takeaway, beer takeaway, pretty much as soon as they were allowed to. And so we went around and supported the pubs and got some beer and you know, took it to sit outside at, um, at our apartment or we took it to the park or we drank it at home. So it's, it's come back and now the pubs are really careful in our neighborhood. They all have, there's about five or six pubs and they all have like a WhatsApp chat to make sure that, you know, if they kick someone out for not respecting social distancing, then he's not going to be allowed in any of the, in any of the pubs. So it's pretty good. Um, we haven't been inside a pub. I'm not comfortable going inside anywhere except my own house basically. 
but there's, you know, our, one of our favorite pubs has like big fluorescent spray painted circles around each table that show where you're allowed to walk and where you're not allowed to walk. So people are being pretty careful. It seems like where we are in this pandemic, we're, we've learned to adapt. We've learned to mm. adapt. And now it seems like it's just about getting everyone on the same page. It seems like the majority is there, but there's some people that because this is such a big concept, it's hard for them to get their minds around. But yeah, it's interesting. I know what I'm seeing here in Southern Ontario. Just the other day, one of my favorite live music venues closed down, uh, Riffs Music Lounge in Woodstock. Mm. And I know that the, the restaurants and pubs are doing the curbside pickup or the outdoor patios, but the live music and the, that kind of cult, those important yeah. cultural things seem to be getting really hit now and it's heartbreaking. Yeah, I, I I have some friends who are in the music business and like they are really struggling um, right now because who knows when they're going to be able to have and the theaters as well for stage productions and Sheffield's a huge theater city that has two major theaters, live theaters and a number of small ones and a theater program that is, you know, at the university where I work and all those sort of live um, cultural events are you know, up in the air, what's going to happen with them. So it's really, really hard. I, I think a number of places will probably shut down before it's all over. And it would be nice if the government would sort of subsidize those and recognize how important arts and culture are for, for society and not just, not just keeping pubs open and not just making sure that everyone goes back to, you know, buying things on the high street or whatever it is that we're supposed to be doing. Interesting. I know it, the Stratford Festival has closed their season. I think they're going to run the 2020 bill whenever they're able to open up to the public again. And mm -hmm. they just they just built a brand new theater. It looks beautiful on the outside. But yeah, it'll be interesting. I can't wait till theaters open again and, and, you, and live yeah. music. But my sense is it's going to be 2021, 2022. I don't think this is, it's going to be gone by the fall. Is that the sense over there? It's certainly my sense. I know that I don't think there's any plans for the theaters to open up this season. I know that they've canceled the pantomimes for Christmas. So they're not planning on running those, which is the big moneymaker for theaters. So everyone's a bit worried about how they're going to stay afloat without um, that kind of income. The universities are starting back up in autumn, which is a bit uh, bonkers to me. In class or virtual? We're supposed to provide, each student is supposed to have one contact hour in person per week. So mostly virtual, but some in person. And it just, it seems like chaos. And it also seems like a bad idea. That, that sounds like the situation here in Ontario with the, the elementary and secondary schools. The premier and the minister of education have said that they're just going to open up the elementary schools pretty much how they were before the pandemic. No masks or physical distancing in grades kindergarten to grade three, but then in grade four and up, they're going to have the children wear masks. And the sick, kid, sick kids hospital, excuse me, made a recommendation that we really need to open education and get the kids interacting with each other, which I agree. And the government does as well, but then the government's not carrying out the recommendations of 15 people class sizes. Yeah. And having done some research, the emergency childcare in New York and Italy and other places for the healthcare providers, when it was a ratio of one adult to seven kids or one to nine, they were very successful in keeping people safe. But it seems that once that number starts getting higher, the risk opens up. So it yeah. can be done safely, but it doesn't seem that the governments are prepared to invest in doing it safely here in Ontario. No. 
Well, it's the same in the UK. I think they want things to open up pretty much, you know, back to normal. And they're, they've put, they've decided that two meters is too much and one meter is just good enough. And um, if you just put the desks a meter apart, then that'll keep all the children apart. That's what they're saying here now too. It's interesting <laughs> how the key messages are so similar. It's almost as if they've never met a child. <laughs> there you go. So if Patrick was four or five ready for kindergarten, would you be sending him in September? Well, oh God, that's a really hard decision. Um, we are going to have to make that decision in January because we'll both be back at work in January. So he'll need to go to nursery or have some kind of childcare. So I don't know. We're kind of putting off thinking about that, but we won't really have much of a choice if, both, if our employers are expecting us to do each 40 hours a week. It's, it's impossible to get anything done other than take care of him when he's this little. So I, I really, it's put that, parents in a really tough spot. <laughs> and that adorable. Why would you want to put him down? He's just so I mean, <laughs> he, that is the other thing, but also it's impossible to get anything done. I actually, I hosted a conference, an online conference um, a month ago. And I had to, thank God I had some funding to hire a research assistant to do most of it for me. I had thought I would be able to do like a couple of hours a week of, of work and it was just impossible. So yeah, there's no way, <laughs> there's no way without childcare to, to keep both parents working. Yeah. Well, best of luck. And it sound, sounds like every family is doing the best they can to address the challenges that their unique situation faces them with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It'd be nice if there was a bit more government support or recognition that people need full-time salaries and maybe not full-time work to go with that. It's interesting you say that, and it makes me think of what I've been hearing in Ontario from advocates and, and people. I know Dana Manning in Stratford talks a lot about a, a, live, a basic income. Yeah. And providing people with a basic income to get us through this stretch. I worry about the income inequality you hear. You hear that the rich are getting significantly richer, and the working class is getting significantly more drained of resource as this progresses. Well, I mean, all the solutions to the all the solutions to keep yourself safe are expensive. When I see people not wearing masks, I wonder if it's a cost issue. Well, it's also a matter of if you're working a working class job, you are probably not able to socially distance very much. And so I think a lot of people feel like, well, why should I bother? Because I'm probably going to get it anyway. You know, what's the point if I'm just, if I'm having to serve people in, you know, customer service um, every day, or if I'm having to work in like a shop factory every day and I'm having to be with all these other people, or if I'm a teacher and I'm just going to be in contact with everyone anyway, um, I think there's a sort of a nihilism to it, which is kind of justified when you don't think the government really cares about you. It's, I would think that one is too many. Risking one life is yep. too many to open up the schools and whatnot. But it seems that they've done a cost-benefit analysis, and I don't understand how they could make those life-or-death decisions, but it's, it's unfortunate. It's un it seems unfortunate. But the thing is, they've been making those life-death calculations the whole time. We just haven't noticed it as much because it hasn't been on this scale. But like they've always been making those decisions with whose lives are worth more when they cut social services and when they cut, you know, hospital budgets. They've always been making those decisions. It's just now we can see it more clearly. So the structural deficits in our societies and communities are more, the pandemic has really focused mm -hmm. the spotlight on those areas. Oh, 
do you think we're going to come out of this better, stronger, more unified? It's, I think about the social movements. Kitchener Waterloo had, my understanding, was over 10,000 people out in the middle of the pandemic, physically distancing, wearing masks to support the Black Lives Matter social movement, the Idle No More Indigenous social movement. Doing some research, I'm hearing people from minority communities saying the time feels different now because the particular ethnic groups aren't out there on their own, but mm -hmm. everybody is out there support. They see a cross section of everyone out there supporting them. And it, rather than black versus white or colonial versus indigenous, now it's everyone versus racist. Yeah. There's, that, there's more of that atmosphere out on the street. I mean, it does feel different, especially like watching the, results of the Black Lives Matter protests that people, you know, were paying attention to them. They were effective in a lot of cities at making some change. Maybe it wasn't um, as significant change as everyone had hoped for, but it was at least, I mean, the fact that all sorts of like companies all of a sudden felt the need to put like lip, lip service social media posts all over the place about this. Like, yes, that's like not helpful at all but it is sort of indicative of a change in the mood that these kinds of things you have to at least pay lip service to you can't just get away with ignoring them anymore so i think that's hopeful there has been positive cultural change yeah and i think also like the the mutual aid societies that cropped up as well like communities taking care of each other and listening to each other's needs and you know that kind of thing is really a positive as well it's, it's just, it's fascinating. The times we live in are fascinating, very complex. Now, just, I know you're very busy with your family and just a couple more questions. Do you think the Toronto Raptors are going to repeat as NBA champions? Uh, yes. I'm really proud to be a part of Raptors Nation and I like the strong stance that they're taking in support of Black Lives Matters. I think they're being real role models, not just in the okay. NBA, around the world. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's an exciting, NBA's back, bubbled. So apparently the bubbled sports are doing a little bit better than the like Major League Baseball where they're flying all over the United States. A lot of the players and teams are getting COVID. What's a bubbled sport? They're having all the players live in one city. So I think basketball has everybody living in one community somewhere. And the NHL has everybody in two different cities playing. So okay. they're not interacting with as many people, keeping your, uh, your That's a good down. idea. It's, it's fascinating to see how they're trying to open up. I know I've looked at some pictures from the Spanish flu bubble of soccer matches, and everybody was wearing masks watching the soccer in 1918 mm. during that period. So, uh, I mean, it really seems masks are the way to go. Yeah. Yeah, I have, have masks everywhere. This is double-layered cotton. Very nice. Excellent. Nose wire? Yeah, nose wire. I nose wire is the way to go. Yeah. And what about your hair? My hair. Should I get a haircut? Should I keep rocking it? COVID no, keep hair. it. Keep COVID it. COVID hair. Mine's really long too. I had a I had a bob before before lockdown. Side bob? I had a bob like here. Oh wow. And, and now it's I want yeah. to get out and support the hair hair community, but also I I've never had hair this long in the last 20 years. I... It's, it's pretty luxurious. <laughs> COVID curls. <laughs> yeah. But I really appreciate your time today. It was nice to hear Patrick for the first time. Yeah.
Thank you very much. And I hope you had a good time on the pandemic show. I had a great time on the pandemic show. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this week's story from the pandemic. We're all in this together, and we're glad you're here together with us. Physically distance with us at pandemishow.ca. Be a part of our community by rating, subscribing, and sharing the pandemic show. Thanks for taking a minute to email an episode, share a link, or promote us on social media. Stories from the pandemic for the people of the pandemic.